this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit right now. I pray, God, that you would uh, allow for other things to fall away from our thinking as we focus on you and, God, your temple and, Lord, the worship that you are due. Lord, center us in the Word of God. Ground us in truth. And, Lord, let us aim always for your will, which is your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're, if you're like me, uh, you're a person who's a busy person. The Lord sort of fashions life that way, that you try to control busyness, but by and large we are sort of under the tyranny of the urgent with a lot of different categories of things that fall into our lives and into our responsibilities. And you're probably like me as someone who's always trying to strike a balance in life trying to meet the appropriate balance between work and family, between serving in a church and, you know, just serving in all kinds of ways where you are pulled in many different directions. I'm reading a book on balance, and because I'm busy, it takes me a long time to read a book like this, but I'm picking away at it. It's called In Search of Balance by Dr. Richard Swenson. Good book, would recommend it to you, and it It early on has, actually it's later on, it has a quote that says, A healthy human requires sufficient exercise, adequate sleep, appropriate nutrition, meaningful work, nourished relationships, and spiritual connectedness. Well, even though those are sort of, most of them are extra biblical um, issues, I'm convicted already, right? I mean, how do we strike a balance like that, let alone what the Bible also requires of us? directly, and that is that we have a ongoing, vibrant relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. That is non-negotiable as a Christian, is to have a vital prayer life and to know him through the word of God, or at least strive to do that. Secondly, we're called to shepherd our families. We're, many of us have children that we are giving care for, that we love, that we want to see succeed in life, and so we're concerned for them and We're pulled by them often as they have needs. We have spouses that many of us are married and we we, um, need to minister to their needs, be there for them. We have to work a job, many of us, both the husband and the wife often are working, whether at home or in in a career. And we have obligations, we have responsibilities, we have to pour it on to get that done. Here's another category. What about the category of church? And we're called to serve in the body of Christ. You have this pastor who's always talking about community, getting connected with each other. When do we have time to connect with each other, have meals with each other, serve each other, meet each other's needs? But all of these are part of what the Bible expects of us and God expects of us to do as the body of Christ, serving, using the gift or gifts that he's given us. Then you have another category. And here's sort of my last biblical category that stuck me this week, uh, stuck out to me this week, and it is evangelism. We're called to go and make disciples, even disciples of all nations. We're called to be concerned for the world, concerned for our city, concerned for our neighborhood. We're called to win people to Christ. The Bible says, he who wins souls is wise. We're called to make disciples. How do we fit it all in? You know, if you 
sort of crisply cut these categories out and paste them into a spreadsheet and look at them almost in a budget prioritization of your time and life, it is convicting, it is dizzying, and it is downright depressing, is it not? I mean, if you were honest to say, how can I get all of these things done and do them well at all? It's very difficult. But I sort of want to set your heart at ease this morning from God's word, even from the book of Ezra. And I want to do that by saying this. The Bible, I believe, based on my own experience, my own couple decades of a Christian uh, life that I've lived and living, uh, living out God's word, the Bible never calls us to overly categorize any one of these biblical priorities. Whether you're talking about family, whether you're talking about work, working a job, or commanded to work. If you don't work, you don't eat. Uh, evangelism, serving in the church, even your relationship with the Lord. We're not supposed to overly categorize any one of these priorities. Because in doing so, you'll focus on one and think that you're neglecting the others. When in actuality, by focusing on any one of those categories that I've just spelled out, if you do that in a God-glorifying way, you are actually fulfilling indirectly the other categories. So it's not that you should always live in some guilt ranking where you say, well, I focused on Tommy at baseball practice and so I wasn't evangelizing. Well, I, you know, I, I made a meal at home for my children and so I, I was doing something irrespective of my relationship with the Lord. Well, you know, I, I went to church today, but man, when am I ever going to go to my neighbors and evangelize? I mean, we, we live in these sort of guilt quandaries when we overly categorize any one biblical priority. And I believe the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is saying, look, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so any one biblical priority and category is actually serving the other categories. And I think that is especially true in terms of evangelism. Evangelism. That perhaps on our priority list is the last thing that we would do or think that we're doing when in essence by doing the other things oftentimes you are indirectly or directly evangelizing. What I mean by that is when you are living in a vibrant relationship with the Lord and somebody else knows about that, guess what? Evangelism is happening. When you go to church and you say, hey, I'm going to church, you tell a neighbor that, or they see you pack up your kids and go to Awana, guess what that is? Evangelism. When you worship the Lord together and say, I am taking the communion, which is a symbol of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and I am proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, guess what just happened? Evangelism. When you observe a baptism and watch somebody um, who is symbolically, you know, old things pass away and everything becomes new publicly, that is evangelism because you're identifying corporately with the body of Christ. When you serve your family, what are you doing? You're evangelizing your little flock in your home. When you work a job in a distinctively Christian way, when you love people that are perhaps unlovely, when you are submissive to people who are perhaps, from your estimation, aren't worthy of submission, when you do those things, God is causing you to be light in a dark world. It's evangelism. There is a time to speak the truth to people. There is a time to speak the life-giving message, and that is evangelism, but that is one part of it. It's a big part of it because people are transformed by hearing the word of God, but they're also transformed by seeing the word of God lived out. That's why the Bible calls us to give an answer 
for the hope that's within us. 1 Peter 3.15, we are to sanctify Jesus as Lord in our hearts so we're ready to give a defense for the gospel. We speak words of grace that are filled with saltiness, as Colossians 4 talks about. We're wetting the appetites of people who are watching us as we live our life for the Lord. And I want to make the case that throughout the Old Testament, God was using Israel evangelistically to the nations. I think a lot of times when you look at the Old Testament, you think, well, that was God's failed program. You ever hear sermons that sort of hint at that? Like, well, Israel was propped up, they had all the blessings, and they rejected, so Christ turned a different direction, and that's a failed program. And I want to just make the case that God was reaching the nations through Israel in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, The institution of the church is living out a very similar program. Both Israel as a nation and the church in the New Testament under the New Covenant stand out distinct in the world. Israel in the Old Testament, the people of God, genuine believers, loving the Lord, worshiping as God's nation. Why? To isolate themselves from the world? Well, in terms of sin, yes. But also in terms of their testimony, they were standing out distinct in the world to reach the nations. And the church is the same program in the New Testament age. It's very similar. Look at Genesis. I want to sort of give you a running start to this idea because we're going to learn from God's people in Ezra chapter 6. But Genesis chapter, chapter 12, verse 3, is where Abraham was called as God's progenitor for the nation of Israel. He was called to go to the promised land And in verse 2, God said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, watch this, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Families. We're talking about people groups at this point. We're talking about nations. God loves nations. Look at Genesis 15, 5. Having a prayer meeting, God's having a prayer meeting with Abraham here, and he's, he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham is called the father of faith. Why? Because everyone who has believed from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is part of this family of faith. The family of faith that started through ethnically through Israel in the Old Testament program and the family of faith where Jew and Gentile have come together to be the body of Christ, the church, in the New Testament program. There is incredible continuity from Old Testament to New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, in terms of people and people groups being drawn to Christ by grace through faith alone. It's always been that way. Look at Psalm 67. This is where I read earlier to start us off in the service, and it was all part of a a plan here. Psalm 67. This is the psalmist who's speaking for God's heart. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Look at this. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Stop there. 
God has always had a heart for the nations. If you go to the end of the story here in Revelation chapter 5, around the throne room of God, you have the song that will be sung through all of eternity, pointing to Christ, who's the Lamb of God. And every creature in heaven is saying, verse 9 of chapter 5, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, you bought people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Our Bible is a missionary Bible. Our Bible is a multi-ethnic Bible. It is about Israel standing out distinct to be a testimony, an example to the nations, to the world. The New Testament church stands out as a city on the hill as a testimony to the nations. How are we doing as a testimony to the nations? Well, one survey, which is sort of the broadest version of what Christianity is, both evangelical and non-evangelical Christianity, is uh, coming in, I think, around Either, uh, it's a third of the population is now calling itself Christian. Like 2.2 billion people in the world are called, are called Christian. And so Christianity is on the move. I, I've heard it said that there are more Christians alive today in the world than ever before. People are getting saved all over the place because God's kingdom is advancing and God's kingdom is the city on the hill. It's an example to the world to draw more people into the kingdom. So I want to look at this through the, old te- the eyes of the Old Testament. But I want you to look at this not as a past program of the way God used people to evangelize. But I want these applications to apply into our hearts this morning. How do we do evangelism in a way that's not guilt-driven, but in a way that is classically distinctive in a world that needs Christ. That's what this remnant group was doing way back when. We're looking at four distinctives of Old Testament evangelism. The first distinctive is that Old Testament evangelism is based on God's commission. I use that word intentionally. We're under a great commission. Here's God's Old Testament commission. Let me read verses 13 and 14. Then, according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Read one more. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Guess what happens in this text right here? Well, we've been studying, if you've been with us from Ezra 1.1 to right now, the temple is complete. This remnant group of 50,000 people and then all that jumped into the building project down in Jerusalem started the temple, and now it's finished. It had been burned down 70 years ago to the year at this point. Burned down by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies. Jerusalem burned to the ground. 50,000 people under the punishing hand of God were exiled up to Babylonia under Nebuchadnezzar. They're sort of isolated, but from God's 
people down in Jerusalem from God's symbol of his presence as it's been burned to the ground. Well, these exiles came back this first wave 50 years later. They started the building project under the command and decree of King Cyrus, this new Persian king. He sends them back home 900 miles. They start the program. But some surrounding neighbors who were Samaritans and sort of unbelieving pagans, they they didn't want God's symbol to be rebuilt. And so they depressed them. They bullied them. They picked on them. They discouraged them. They even bribed counselors against the project down there. It wasn't going to happen. The people's hands dropped, the text says. They stopped the work. They stopped at the foundation level and went into a lull period for 16 years. And then in Ezra chapter 5, you got two prophets, two men of God that come to town, Haggai and Zechariah, and they start preaching the word and they inspire the people to lift their hands again and start building again. They pick up their hammers, they pick up their tools, and they're banging away, getting the temple going once again. Whether God's, whether man's law was going to approve this or not, they were going for it by faith this time, and they didn't stop. This is sort of a brackets um, picture here in verse 15 where they were commanded to build and they finished the project and four and a half years later after they had stopped they completed the process and you know what that is I just want to say this up front that's evangelism the testimony of this building was evangelistic it was it was and God made it that way not just because it was the 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 rebirthing of a temple that had been destroyed 70 years before, but in the news, in the news media of this time, this whole project got hyped up. Remember, the governor comes to town, Tatanai, and he puts the building project under immense ominous scrutiny. He, you know, he's saying, look, you know, you've, you've kind of gotten aggressive on this project again. It looks like a little battle station, and so we're going to shut it down, right? And so he begins, Tatanai sort of vets the process and then corresponds with you know, Darius, who is sort of the president over, over Persia, a vast land expanse in the world and population at that time, a major mega leader in the world. He's corresponding with this guy, trying to get forces to make sure he can shut this project down. But then the testimony of the people of Israel touches the heart of the president, if I can use that as a metaphor, touches the heart of the, the president so that All of the federal support of Persia rains down on Governor Tatanai in pressure, in money, in force, and says, listen, Governor Tatanai, not only are we not shutting this down, but I'm moved by this building project because I found records about it dating back to King Cyrus. And so you have to do this. I I sense that there is a God behind this thing. And not only so, if we don't finish this project. You can see this at the end of uh, where we ended up last time in verse 12. If anybody flies in the face of this, let them be crucified on their own home if they fly in the face of building this house for this God in Jerusalem. So there's some horsepower behind this project. There's some funding that comes in from the uh, Samaritan government to get this done, and it's happened under God's plan. This thing was hyped up. It reminds me of, it would be like if we had a project here where, you know, the government, municipality was sort of standing against us and the thing went all over CNN headline news for some reason or Fox News and sort of, we, you know, we were sort of the bad guy, but we respond humbly and all of a sudden the president is moved by that and says, oh yeah, it's going to happen and, and it's going to be funded here in Anchorage. 
and that becomes some display. That's exactly what happened here. I know a pastor uh, down in Florida, he, he's sort of a colleague of mine, who was disciplining someone in the, in the church who was involved in immorality, and that family actually flew in the face of that pastor, and it ended up being all over the news. And so things do hype up in that way, and guess what? These things are evangelism. They are taking a stand for Christ. And here in Ezra, the perseverance of this building project was evangelistic. It showed that God was real and that these people were the real thing and authentic for the glory of God. People are watching. They're watching us. They're wondering how we're going to do, how we are doing in our own perseverance as Anchorage Grace Church. And it's all evangelistic. It's not just, you know, learning an evangelistic tract and taking somebody through it. There's also the dimension of just persevering in the Christian life and how God draws people through our corporate witness. Well, this, this was a, as I put it, this was driven by the word of God. You see Haggai and Zechariah in verse 14. The, the people were not inspired by just the decrees that were coming down from these heavyweight kings, they were inspired by the word of God. And I just want to say, that should be our inspiration. Why would you ever evangelize? Why would you ever step out of your comfort zone? Well, because God has told us to do it by his word. When Jesus stood at, you know, the Mount of Olives to the, before the 500 people, Matthew 28 harmonized with 1 Corinthians 15. He's standing on this mountain. He's saying, go out into all the world and make what? Disciples of every nation. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching all that I have commanded. And God promises to be with everyone who's involved in that process. You say, why am I going to step out and talk to somebody and share Christ with them? Why am I going to invite somebody to church and make an awkward moment at work? Because you're commanded to. Why am I going to say something to my neighbor about Christ? Because we're commanded to. And oftentimes, what, the only thing that can fly in the face of the fear emotion is the word of God that over, overrides that emotion. It's just black words on a white page. Go, or as you are going... And you do it, and you all of a sudden say something to somebody. That's evangelism. It is. Bill Bright, who's heard of Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, um, the late Bill Bright, real fireball for the Lord, and an evangelist. Uh, He always used to say, and I remember reading this in a book that he wrote, that failure in witnessing is failing to witness. Failure in evangelism is failure to evangelize. In other words, it's you evangelize, you share your faith, you put yourself out there and you leave the results up to God because he's decreed for us to do it. So we leave the results in his hands. We know he's the heart surgeon. We're just facilitating the surgery, okay? We're just opening the door and the Lord is the one who does the work. And that's what happened here. They were working against all odds to finish this building project, but they just obeyed the Lord. Okay, Haggai, okay, Zechariah, obviously God's in this. They've been beating us up and bullying us. They've been bribing counselors against us, and and we're under scrutiny, but we're going to build anyway because God told us to. That's evangelism. That's the tone of evangelism. Haggai called it hard times, and Haggai 1, Zechariah called it day of small things, Zechariah 4. These are the sermons they preached, Haggai and Zechariah, those books of the Bible. That's what was being preached while they were getting refueled 
to go for it for God. And they were doing it by faith. Haggai 1.12, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. They feared the Lord. Zechariah 4.6, not by might nor by power. Sound familiar? But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. They were fueled by faith. There was no Shekinah glory on this building project. It's just like we live it out today. We live it through the eyes of faith, seeing God's glory in obedience by faith. That's why we witness. That's why we do what we do. God's building his church, and it's pretty big, 2.2 billion over the world. Well, they were driven by the word of God, and secondly, they were driven by the providence of God. I just want to pick up on that. Verse 13 again, these decrees were coming by Cyrus and by Darius. And then the end of verse 14, you see that there's a decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes. Uh, the author here, Ezra, is letting history just kind of run forward a little bit, saying, hey, we've had some major heavyweight leaders here. Between, I mean, the most powerful rulers in the Near East are Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, and they've given passage for God's work to be done. But guess what? They're pretty minuscule. They're pretty puny compared to the living God. Look at verse 14 before that. It says, they finished, middle of the verse, they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel, same word, and by decree of these kings. Whose decree wins out? What decree is more powerful? God's decree. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Death can't destroy the church. Death has no sting. The church will build. You say, I don't like, you know, certain programs. I don't think certain things are effective in the church right now. I don't like this. I don't like that. Well, guess what? God's decree is overriding all of that. God's, God wins. He always wins. And so we're just trying to be faithful as he builds our church through us. Nothing can stop God's power which overrides. Well, in verse 15, in the springtime, that's what the month of Adar is. This is sort of February, March, sort of this time period that we're in now. The building was done. The first Old Testament evangelistic method is based on God's commission. The second is Old Testament evangelism is living in a community. Living in a community. Remember, I was talking earlier about priorities. And I want to emphasize here that coming together in community as a church or as a Bible study or as a home group or as a men's Bible study or a women's Bible study, when you come together and gather together, that's evangelism. It's real easy to say, well, you know, I I can't commit to that because when am I going to ever be out in the world? Well, we're supposed to do it all, but just recognize in your heart that coming together, even this morning, is evangelism. It's a testimony that transforms people's lives. And I want to show you from the Old Testament and the New Testament that that's true. Look at verse 16. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the return exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Let's stop there. They finished the house, and there's a whole collection of people here that are gathered, priests, Levites, and I like this phrase, the rest of the returned exiles. You got the Superdome filled with, you know, 50,000 plus people, 100,000 people gathering in for a giant massive celebration and party to celebrate what the Lord has done through them. Glorifying God extrovertedly out there saying, we are enjoying the Lord together. 
That's corporate gathering. That is evangelism. People know about those gatherings. Evangelism. Levites and the rest of the return exiles, they, they had joy in their heart. They knew the grace of God. The reason that we should gather together on Sunday mornings is the grace of God. And the reason they were overfilled with joy is because they knew they didn't deserve to be there at that moment. They knew they should have been back up in Babylon because of their sin. And they knew that they deserved to be there. And now they're making a massive sacrificial dedication to the Lord because they knew that they had sinned. And one of the greatest ways to feel intimacy with the Lord is to repent of sin and mean it. I've heard it said the the closest you can get to God is when you're on your knees in repentance. And you know what? There's not a far sort of gap from genuine repentance and real, authentic, powerful joy. And the Bible says here in verse 16 that they had joy. And that's, that's not only that they were celebrating, but they were also dedicating. And they were dedicating their hearts and joy. And one of the most attractive elements to draw Christians, to draw people to Christ rather, that's manifested only in Christians is spirit-wrought joy. Spirit-born joy. The world's looking for it. The world tries to buy it. The world tries to fabricate it. The world tries to use media to make joy in the heart. And those versions of joy are superficial and short-lived. In Christ, we taste of something that only Christians taste of. And that's genuine joy. When I was a non-believer, I watched Christians gather in public high school before school. And I thought they were weird. And I was even in the church but I thought they were weird, and then I got saved. Then I thought they were brothers and sisters. And I went, wow, y'all are so happy, and I'm happy. That's authentic joy. Changes your life, and it's what everybody wants who's on the outside looking in. So whether or not they'll repent to get it is the key. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's what they were experiencing is joy. They knew that they'd experienced a second exodus. They'd escaped once again. Israel had escaped from Pharaoh, and now they escaped from Babylon, and they were experiencing joy together. This should be our atmosphere on Sunday mornings. Um, The first temple was built under Solomon's rule, and there was an uncountable amount of sacrifices. This was more of a rustic building. This was a little bit um, less in terms of um, any sort of... um, polish spit and polish this was sort of a a rustic building and so it was a sort of a a a more subdued atmosphere and so here you have 712 offerings but just enough to cover all of Israel and their sins it was a sin offering verse 17 says to cover all of Israel even in the southern kingdom they were concerned to cover all of the tribes and they were dedicated in joy. Turn over to John 17. I want to show you how this works in the New Testament. You might say, well, that's nice in the Old Testament. We have no concept of, you know, the sacrificial system. You know, we're not, we're not butchering lambs or oxen or things like that up here. So how can we really relate to this, you know, in the New Testament church? We've had Christ who died as the fulfillment of all that ceremony. All those sacrifices were a symbol that was fulfilled in Christ on Golgotha. And so how can we relate to this? Well, look at John 17 because Jesus in his high priestly prayer gives the inside scoop on how this kind of corporate unity and dedication is evangelistic. Jesus, who had just eaten the meal of Passover, interestingly enough, and was headed 
um, that night to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples was walking through the fields, crossing the brook of Kidron, and he was teaching parables to them. And then he breaks into prayer, perhaps while he's walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to God, lifting up his eyes to heaven, verse 1. And then he broadens the prayer to his disciples and then ultimately to everyone who would believe. Look at verse 13. But now I am coming to you, God, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. What is one of Jesus' primary prayers? That the church would have joy. Why? What? What does that matter? We're going to be in heaven. We're going to have joy there. So why do we need joy here? He says, I have given them my word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, why do they need to be in the world still? Verse 17, they're sanctified in truth. They're protected by the word of God. That was a big prayer request on Christ's heart. Why are they in the world? Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Uh, By the way, that's us. We got prayed for in this prayer. He's praying not only for the disciples, but all the people who will be impacted by the word of God since the disciples. Verse 21. Here's the reason we're left in the world, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world, here it is, may believe that you sent me. Where's the evangelistic program? You know, where, where's, the, where's the baseball game that's supposed to draw the world in to the church so they can hear the gospel? That's not the way that Jesus describes evangelism here. Instead, he says, look, if you're dedicated to each other, filled with joy, sanctified in truth, connected together in community, the world's going to see that and go, wow, I really like what I see and I want some of that. Being authentic, being real, loving the Lord, worshiping God, that's what draws people to Christ. I don't have a problem with evangelistic programs and things like that. I just think that this is preeminent. This is the most authentic way to be evangelistic, is to be drawn together in love. They shall know they are Christians by their love, one for another. Love and joy, manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And and he, he goes on here. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So the world's looking on the outside and they're going, man, they love each other a whole lot. And that must mean that they're serving a higher power. And so that must be real. And so I want to investigate. That's evangelism. Coming together And getting to know people, not just showing up to church, but involving yourselves in people's lives is evangelism. Building relationships with Christians reaches the world. That's the point. Look at 1 Corinthians 14. I want to show you where Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 14. I don't have time to get into the um, debates about the gifts of the Spirit or, or tongues. And what that is, I believe it's known languages, but we can talk about that in detail later. I know that there's a variety of opinion on that. But the point is still the same, whatever you translate tongues as in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23. 
If therefore the whole church comes together, again this corporate nature, and all speak in tongues, you know, a variety of languages, you know, it's sort of confusing to the outsider. If all are speaking in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Some sarcasm here. But if all prophesy, in other words, if all speak in a known language, if you're speaking in the the Koine Greek, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, and look at this, this is evangelism. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. In other words... Inviting someone to come to church to watch you do church is evangelism. I, a lot of times I hear people say, well, you know, they, they weren't evangelistic because all they did is invite somebody to come hear the preacher instead of evangelizing them themselves. Well, if you don't feel comfortable speaking the gospel, then bring someone to the spoken gospel. That's evangelism. And bring people along so that they can experience the atmosphere of joy and love and watch that and be compelled by it. They'll either be compelled or drawn in or they'll be repelled by it. Because they'll say there's this holiness factor is kind of freaking me out, right? Bring them in. Bring them in. Show them what it looks like to be a Christian. You say, but we're not perfect people. Everybody knows that already. It's okay. It's what you do with your imperfections that matter. That's why I'm, you know, sort of grinding an axe here or standing on a soapbox. I I think children should be in the the corporate worship service because it's evangelism to do that. It's evangelism to stand and worship God in front of your babies, even some of the younger ones, but especially as they get older. It's evangelism. It, it It feeds knowledge, even things that they're not quite grasping yet. They're experiencing this atmosphere. Hey, the air is a little bit thinner here in this room. They're serious about what they're doing. Hey, dad's giving more money. Hey, what's going on? Wow, why did that person get dunked in water? It's sights and sounds that affect and influence people. You want TV to be the only influence in their life? Evangelism, by gathering together. You say, I haven't been spending enough time with my family. Bring them to church. You say, I can't involve myself in church too much because I need to spend more time with my family. You're making a wrong contradiction. They all feed each other. Biblical priorities all feed each other and create health all together. Well, that's corporate, that's witnessing through the living community or corporate nature of the church. Number three, Old Testament evangelism is practicing consecration. Consecration, practicing holiness, practicing biblical and spiritual separation from the world. It's what Israel was called to do, and it's also what the church is called to do on a spiritual level. Verse 19. I've got to find my way back to Ezra chapter 6, but verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover for the priest and the Levites had purified themselves together, all 
of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. And look at verse 21. Here's evangelism here with consecration. It was eaten by the people of Israel. This Passover meal was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. This is evangelism through separating, separation or separating. It's really different than a lot of sort of church evangelistic strategies or methodologies. Again, I don't mind, um, you know, having programs that draw people in so that you can preach the gospel, but this is a different methodology. And I'm going to show you from the New Testament that this is a parallel methodology, a method that should be practiced within the church. This is evangelism by way of separation. Again, in verse 18, they, if you skip back up, they had divided the Levites and the priests according to the book of Moses, according to the clarifying work that David did later on. So they're practicing biblical worship, just like we practice sacrificial worship, giving a sacrifice of praise as we sing. And now they're performing the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which are the ceremonial Um, law-driven feasts that are very public for the church. And these are feasts of consecration, feasts that represent dealing seriously with sin. How do you reach people for Christ? You separate from the world by dealing very seriously with sin. There's nothing more authentic, there's nothing more distinct than talking about sins that make the world feel guilty and make Christians feel guilty, but we've got grace. And that's what this people group was doing and what they were really concerned to do was to fulfill the Passover. Again, they felt like they were involved in a second exodus. They had experienced the grace of God and deliverance. And so a few months after they had completed the temple in April, they were performing Passover. This would be March, April, our time period right now, the month in the Jewish calendar called Nisan, and they were performing Passover. The priests and the Levites, it had been the fathers who had traditionally done Passover, but now it's the Levites, these pastors. Hey, they had ceremonially cleansed themselves, and they were ready to perform Passover, and they were doing it um, all through the night. Sacrificing showing that they were clean. You know, the Passover is an amazing story because back when the children of Israel were under the hand of Pharaoh and God was trying to break them out of that prison situation, you know, more bricks, less straw situation, let's rescue them out. Um, They were the plagues that were given and one of the, the worst things that was done to the Egyptians to break their wills was to have the firstborn son slain by a death angel that, that went over Egypt. And the Israelites were spared because they were told that for the death angel to pass over their home and for the firstborn son to be saved and to be covered and to be protected, um, the father had to kill a lamb and that was 
blameless and spotless and splatter the blood on the doorpost. And that is a symbol, my friends, of the one true perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who was killed, who was allowed to be crucified by our Heavenly Father, and his blood was splattered on a cross, on that doorpost, that tree, so that when the wrath of God passes over us like a death angel, we are covered and we are saved and we are spared and we are set and we are set free and we're delivered and we experience grace that way and we're out from under the tyranny of sin and that dictator of sin that has ruled over our lives the punishment that we deserved was put on Christ for us so that we could go free. And that's the picture of Passover. These worshipers, I think oftentimes we think, well, it's Old Testament worship. They didn't hear the old story. They didn't know about the Messiah like we do. So they didn't experience joy like we do. They were experiencing joy, the joy of deliverance. And they were practicing Old Testament gospel worship that foreshadowed the coming of Christ. They were foreshadowing the Messiah together. And they were enjoying God together. And that is evangelism. That's what they were doing. They were a city on the hill back then. And they were serious about being clean. They were serious about about symbolically showing the cleansed nature of their hearts. The Old Testament says that the priests were to be ceremonially clean, and that's mentioned 204 times. That's 44% of Leviticus and Numbers is being clean. It's very important to have a testimony of holiness before the world. And it's evangelism. I want to show you again. Again, the lamb, the paschal lamb would have been killed. And then verse 21, it says the, the Israelites who returned from exile, they ate it. But then everyone, verse 21, who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples, they were eating too. What does that mean? That means that all of the surrounding neighbors, whether you were a Jew who had kind of said, you know what, I'm not into the Jerusalem thing anymore. The place all got burned down and I didn't have to go to exile, but I'm going to join up with these pagan worshipers. I'm part of their cult group now, or I'm going to be part of this, or I'm kind of going to be half in and half out. The exiles who survived exile and made it back and who built the temple said, hey, come on in, come on over. We want you to enjoy Passover with us. That's what they were doing. It's not us four, shut the door, no more. Old Testament Israel, we don't care about you. No, it's come eat Passover with us. Celebrate the gospel with us. And the Bible says that both pagans, people who are complete non-believers or ethnically different, they were coming in and eating Passover and people who were Jews who were becoming believers ate Passover. But there was one prerequisite And that is that they were willing to separate themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples. They were were saying, I repent of false worship and I believe. Being serious about sin and being willing to talk about it and calling people to repentance and watching people repent is evangelism. It draws people because it's, it's so authentic. I remember... When I first became a Christian, I was sort of an extrovert about that, which might be hard to believe. But when the Lord turned the lights on, he kind of 
turn my mouth on it. I began to talk about the Lord a lot. And one of my good friends who I used to um, involve myself with in sort of a partying lifestyle, he was watching me very keenly. And I had given my testimony in front of the youth group. And, and I was having some people over for a pray in the New Year's party. And he called up and he said, hey, can I come? And I thought, man, he is going to blow the party up and mess it up. Because he's a very popular guy and very extroverted himself. And I was tempted to say no. He was asking, you know, I've kind of heard, you know, what you've been talking about in your testament. Can I come? And I'm going, yeah, sure, yeah, come on, you know, it'll be fine. And so he shows up, and he's influenced by the community. And that night, as we prayed around the circle for the new year, he believed. That's how it works. People people get around a God-fearing community, and they believe well, I wasn't timing myself well. I'm going to have to like wrap this, wrap this up. This is not, as one person put it, loose as a goose evangelism. This is costly evangelism, and it is really what we're called to. Well, look, look at this uh, second feast real quickly. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread in verse 22. What is that? That is where ceremonially Israel is called to eat flat bread. You basically take out the, the yeast agent of, of leaven, the bacteria that causes the bread to rise and get big and fluffy, and you eat it as flat bread, and it's a symbol of the fact that the Egyptians rushed, I mean, the Jews rushed away from the Egyptians, rushed out from under them, and they didn't have time to wait around for the bread to rise, and so now it's time to separate and eat flat bread to say we are out from under their tyranny. Leaven in the New Testament, is a symbol now of the sin that can be involved in the church. And the idea is that, look, just as the Jews separated themselves out from under the paganism of the Egyptians, in the church we need to separate ourselves from the paganism of the world. We don't need to have the little leaven that leavens the whole lump. We need to be a pure church. That symbol, both Passover and unleavened bread, is picked up in 1 Corinthians 5. Please turn over there real quickly. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul is dealing very strongly with the church. He's wanting the church to have a corporate testimony for Christ in in the world. He's being strong with them. He's being severe with them. In the beginning of chapter 5, he's talking about immorality that even the world doesn't involve itself in. It's incestuous relationships that are going on. Verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In other words, you're clean because of the one true Passover lamb. So act like unleavened bread. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Be an authentic group, Paul is saying. Don't play around with the world in the church. Deal with it. Confront it so you're a holy people, an authentic group of Christians. Verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. 
What he's saying there is stop. He's basically saying, look, what I'm talking about to you as a church is deal with the sin issues in your church. Deal with the immorality in your church. Don't worry about those who are outside of the church. God will judge them. God will deal with them. The way to reach them is to deal with the sin in the church. And he's saying, if I didn't want you to deal with the sin in the church, but wanted you um, sort of to be out in, in the world, then then we would have it sort of flipped on its head. You, you would, in essence, I would need to take you out of the world to preserve you from the world. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying deal with the sin that's inside. Verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, somebody who's faking it. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Why would Paul say to do this? Is he just talking about holiness for holiness sake? Let me tell you why he says to do this. When you deal with sin head on, directly, with grace, with truth, with love, sincerely, relationally, biblically, and you peacemake, that is radically different than anything that the world ever does. It, it makes you stand out as a light in the world when you're holy. Just like the children of Israel and Ezra, when they were performing Passover and celebrating the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the New Testament church is called to stand out and be a distinct, consecrated, holy people. If we were to look through, we don't have time, but chapter 6 talks about not taking other Christians within the church to court. Don't go public with your disputes. And then chapter 7 talks about principles of marriage. Don't just marry in the Lord. Don't marry unbelievers. If, you're, if you get saved and you're married to an unbeliever, don't just leave them high and dry. Try to win them to Christ with your life. I mean, these are all gospel, reach the world for Christ principles. Chapter 8, don't eat with a, um, you know, a weaker brother or sister in the church. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols with them. If that offends them, don't do that. Don't hurt their conscience in front of the world. Don't do that because that hurts your witness. And then 1 Corinthians 9 Paul said, I became all things to all men that I may win some. I was willing to sacrifice my privileges and my freedoms just to win people to Christ. And back in chapter 5, he's just saying, be a holy corporate group in front of the world and it will win people to Christ. Lastly, Old Testament evangelism comes back to one primary cause. I just want to wrap up with this. And that is that God is the one who causes our Joy. He's the one that causes our salvation. We find that at the end of verse 22. Look at this. They kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. When you believe in sovereign grace, that God is the only reason why you're saved, and people know that about you, that's evangelism. You know, there's a lot of people who complain about a lot of things. When you don't complain about things, and when you're grateful for the grace of God out loud, that draws people to Christ. 
Where did the joy come from? The joy came from, it says directly, the secret of their joy. Why were they all spooled up to worship God publicly this way? Because God had done that in their hearts. Joy is a very, very attractive attribute in the Christian. It is. It's very compelling. It's very distinct from how the world typically rolls publicly. And God gave them this kind of joy. It's like Paul sitting in prison, in Roman imprisonment, with rats crawling across his feet, saying, you know what, whether I have much or little, I've learned the secret of being content. You can read about that in Philippians chapter 4. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What are the all things? Well, it's being content in a very dirty and dank and tough situation. Paul could have said, man, my ministry's over. I'm in chains. What am I going to do? Well, guess what? Evangelism doesn't work that way. His testimony of grace, sitting in a prison, being content, having learned how to find joy in that situation through being exposed to the gospel and believing at that level, that testimony is impacting us this morning. Talk about evangelism. It all comes back to what God does in the heart, and that's what's on display here. He turned the heart of a king, the king of Assyria. Who's that? That's Darius. He was the king of Persia, not Assyria, you say, but Assyria was the land that now he was the king over. And it's sort of the idea that, hey, he could be as bad as those Assyrian kings were, but now this king of Persia, Darius, he's been on our side, and that's all by the grace of the gospel. It's kind of like USSR under Vladimir Putin instead of the Cold War days in the 80s. So how do we, um, how are we supposed to live for the Lord? Don't live in guilt. Speak the truth, live the truth, and trust a sovereign God to change lives. I'd ask you to bow in prayer now. Let me pray these applications into your life and heart and into mine. I gave you, um, sort of had the sheets handed out to you as you came in so that you can follow along later. Father, thank you for our time together. Lord, I pray that our definition of evangelism would broaden and that, Lord, we would be unfettered from self-induced guilt about our evangelistic shortcomings. And I pray, God, that we would be bold and speak the truth to people as we have opportunity, as you guide us in that occasion. But, Lord, I pray that we would also be about living the gospel for your glory actively participating in the, in the local church, obeying the word of God, living holy lives, maintaining a holy testimony, trusting your sovereign works at work in people's hearts, and Lord, realizing that you are the originator and the author of everyone who has ever believed. And it's not up to us, it's not up to our gimmicks or tricks or turn of a phrase, but it's you using us by your grace in spite of us using the word of God to change lives. I pray, God, we would be all about evangelism as we live the normal Christian life. Give us the joy that is unmistakably yours. Let it be manifested in our hearts to the glory of God and let many people be drawn to Christ because you are building your church and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, I'd invite you to stand to your feet as we close. Let's ask you for your attention just as we're finishing up. Be um, aware of many things in the bulletin. There's a men's retreat.